When you think about women in classic films of the 30s and 40s, one of the things you think about, in addition to Betty Davis's long strides and Joan Crawford's perfect cheekbones, are their voices. Those voices. Garbo's wine. But why am I telling you all this? Last night I didn't know you at all. Jean Arthur's throaty warble. That will not be all, Mr. Lightcap. Dilg is innocent regardless of all the reasonable evidence dredged up by lawyers. Barbara Stanwyck's seductive energy. Listen, you great big wonderful genius of a newspaper man. You came down here to shoot some life into this dying paper, didn't you? Well, the whole town's curious about John Doe, and boom, just like that, you're going to bury him. Davis, of course, talking while striding. You're a strange man, Alex. It could be that you have some vague notion in that inflated ego of yours of, of abolishing him. You know, the, the godlike gesture. Billy Burke's chirpy good cheer. June! June! Mr. Whiteside's coming out! Rosalind Russell's unstoppable pace. I know all about reporters, Walter. A lot of dainty Budinskis running around without a nickel in their pockets. And for what? So a million hired girls, modem as wise, will know what's going on? Why, I... You could go on forever. Oh, what's the use? They were very distinctive, and I think one of the things that made some people into stars or into very successful character actresses was the voice. Critic and author Molly Haskell. And you think back on them, it was part of their charm because there was something in the voice that gave them not only something completely idiosyncratic, but something vulnerable. Tonight means a good deal to me. I don't know what precisely, and I don't know how. Something's... Trying to take it Back away then, Catherine Hepburn's voice had the vulnerability, but not always the charm. Hepburn's voice grated on some people, like fingernails on a blackboard, because it was this sort of la-di-da, Bryn Mawr accent, and it just, you know, dripped elitism. Because he's everything you're not. He's been poor, he's had to work, and he's had to fight for everything. And I love him as I never even began to love you. So these were the signatures of these women, the voices. Taken at a fine hotels, country places, townhouses. And Stanwyck, of course, had the most wonderful... It could be sultry, it could be strident, but completely recognizable. And I think this is what stardom was all about, something you could just hear without even seeing the person you knew who it was. I'm going to give them to her, and he's going to pay for them. If he's got any extra increases, he can just hand them over. And if he don't, maybe I'll get a lawyer and bring in the name of that highfalutin widow. We're talking about the years in Hollywood not long after silent films had given way to talkies. So, of course, voices were a major factor. Movie actors had only just begun to use them, and they were exploring every possibility. These were also the prime factory years, when the studios developed a system for cranking out five or six hundred movies a year. This is a business. Hollywood was a business. Janine Basinger's book, The Star Machine, details the way the studios built movie stores, piece by piece. They could buy the cameras, they could buy the costumes or make them, but the stars, they couldn't go to the star store and buy a star. The studios sent talent scouts out by the dozen. They found anybody with a spark of life. Maybe they won a diving contest. Maybe they had a hit show on Broadway. Maybe they were running an elevator. Second floor, coats, furs, Paris gowns. Second? Uh, thank you. So some of these stories about starlets like Lana Turner being discovered at drugstore counters and dance halls were more or less true. But that was only the beginning of the process. When they brought them into the system is when their real business efficiency took off. That's when they looked them over like it was a cattle market and started fixing them up teaching them, shaping them. What's your name? Esther Victoria Blanchett. 
As early as the mid-30s, Hollywood was already poking fun at its own star-making, revamping, name-changing tendencies in the original A Star is Born. Well, that blodgett's definitely out. Let's see, uh, Esther, Victoria, Victoria, Vicky. How about Vicky? And Hollywood lore is filled with stories of the studio's misjudgments of one kind or another. Barbara Stanwyck almost fell victim to one of those. She made three pretty terrible movies in which she looked pretty awful, but she came into the hands of Frank Capra. Look, Mr. Cannell, I just can't afford to be without work right now, not even The director Capra took one look at the over-glamorized Stanwyck screen test and realized she may have looked like a movie star, but that wasn't enough. Capra saw the test and he said, you know, we've done something wrong here. We've lost something. Let's take that glamour off her and bring her forward more as she really is. Bring out her own natural quality. Look, John, something terribly important has happened. They're forming John Doe clubs. We know of eight already, and they say that there's good... Stanwyck's own personality and style had come through. Remarkably, in that era of the genre and the type, the entertainment that came out managed to rise above it all so many times. You started with a type. There was a kind of template... But then what became interesting was the variations worked on that. I mean, you had a whole lot of wisecracking blondes, but only Jean Arthur, to speak of a really great voice, became a star. Where's this thing going to end anyway? Here you are, back in the attic. Now he's pulling tricks. Thinking about Jean Arthur's voice, Betty Davis's walk, and Barbara Stanwyck's natural qualities and all the rest, the word that comes to mind is constraints, and a phenomenon you might call the Hollywood paradox. How was it that this remarkable variety of idiosyncratic women turned up on the Hollywood lots in the 30s and 40s? This was a moment of the most severe constraints imaginable. For one thing, they were all white, pretty much all Anglo-Saxon. Any diversity or minorities were relegated to the character actors and bit players. And for another thing, these women were owned by the studios, literally, under the strictest contracts. Betty Davis and Olivia de Havilland famously fought the studios to gain more freedom and control and won, but most of the stars worked within the system. The Hollywood paradox is what came out of it. Individualism, of all things. You must forgive me. I've had a very trying evening. Eccentricity. And we'll start together with nothing. Nothing but each other. Personality, with a capital P. Holy smoke, the drop kerchief. That hasn't been used since Lily Langtree. No one would want to put actors in that position again. But what Stanwyck and the rest of them were able to accomplish, even in their chains, is something to marvel at and just keep watching. For WNYC, I'm Sarah Fishko.